Thanks for tuning in to the Know and Do podcast. I'm your host, Justin Barton. Before jumping into this enjoyable conversation with an old friend and mentor, I just want to say how much I am, enjoy- am enjoying doing these long-form conversations with good people who have experienced growth and obtained wisdom throughout their lives. These lessons learned and stories told come from experiences that have been both positive and painful, but the lessons were learned either way. I have experienced that wisdom learned through observation and application can be very helpful to me, but even more so is wisdom earned through often painful failures and sometimes embarrassing situations. Yes, these lessons hurt, but to me it is a much more powerful lesson and one that sticks with me longer. I am grateful and excited to have several more of these conversations in the queue and lined up for future conversations, but I'm always looking for more people with life lessons and wisdom, learned and earned, that they are willing to share with me and with the listening audience of Know and Do. My ideal interview would be with someone who is possibly nearer the end of his or her life than the beginning and has a story to tell and is willing to share the good and the not so good so that those that come behind them can learn from their experiences. This conversation is also hoped to be a kind of legacy where the person involved can impart some of the more important things to them, to their children, grandchildren, and on down the line for generations to come. If you know of anyone who fits this description and who would be willing to have a recorded conversation with me, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and let me know how to contact them. I will gladly initiate that contact and see how it might work out. Also, if you find the Know and Do podcast to be of value to you, please share it with your friends and family. Please subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on that same service. You may also follow Know and Do on Facebook. Just search Know and Do and like us and leave a note to let us know what you like most or what you would love to hear. Now, onto the conversation with Paul Snow. Paul Snow is someone that I have known since I was about 12 years old. He seemed a wise sage at that point. Now, 30 years later, he seems to be a wiser sage with more life experience, positive and difficult. I recall sitting in a sort of workshop with him, teaching a bunch of 14 to 18-year-old youth and learning the concept of a paradigm and seeing things through another's eyes and experience. Although I didn't really recognize it at the time, That has been a very powerful lesson in my life. From that and other similar experiences, I desire to understand the lives and experiences and wisdom of people from many more walks of life than I ever thought I would. Later, in a marriage and family course that he and his wife taught, my wife and I learned many helpful things. Among those is that an airplane is off course more than 90% of the time. It is the constant and small adjustments that get the passengers where they want to go. In life, marriage, parenting, etc., we are off course more than 90% of the time. Even here, it is the constant and small adjustments that must be made to make sure that we get where we hope to be. If those constant and small adjustments are not made, eventually a major adjustment will need to be made that can cause all sorts of issues. But that major course adjustment is still better than hitting the proverbial mountain head-on. In this conversation, we will range over his life and experiences in faith, profession, family, philosophy, loss of trust, 
and the love of a good spouse. Now on to the conversation with Paul Snow. All right, so Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do now, and then we'll get into where you came from a little bit later. <clears throat> well, I'm Paul Snow. I, uh, I'm 70 years old. I've got a beautiful wife that I am honestly sick in love with, and six children, 24 grandkids. I've been a dentist for 42 and a half years. I'm not retired yet. My son, Dallin, bought the practice a year ago, so I work for him now one day a week. Mm. My dental license expires in June, and so that will be the final retirement, actually. So you aren't planning on renewing that dental license? No, no. I can tell you've been doing this uh, de-escalation, I guess, moving towards this retirement, so I'm sure that was part of the three-year plan, huh? Yeah. Or, or a longer plan, probably a 42-year plan. Huh? Yeah, I guess. And, you know, you never know how that's going to happen, but it just worked out great with my son coming in. Mm-hmm. And because he's been... When he first came in, he was working for me, and patients, uh, the front office lady would say, do you want to see Dr. Snow senior junior? They'd say senior. But once they met him, they'd say, no, he's okay. They'd rather see him. Oh. And I love it. Well, that's great. Yeah. That's great that you've been able to pass on yeah. the the practice to your son and obviously some qualities that people admire. I'm sure that makes you feel good about things there, huh? See if you do. Or was that more Marsha that you Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Staff has said it's a good thing that Dallin is like Marsha instead of like me. <laughs> awesome. Tell me a little bit about where you come from, your parents, grandparents, where you were born and raised and those types of things. Okay. I was born in Cedar City, Utah, but I do not remember that. I have a sister who's 11 months younger than me. I'm the oldest of four. She was born in Salina, Utah. I don't remember that. I don't, my first memory is when I was about five or six moving to Portland, Oregon, and started grade school there and attended high school there and just pretty much grew up there. My dad and mom were active in the church, semi-active, I want to say. You know, they had kind of some struggles, and they actually did get sealed in the temple when I was about 12 years old. Up in Oregon, though, up in Portland, I went to a very large high school and very few members of the church. It was the largest high school in Portland, about 3,000 people plus students, probably 20 LDS, hmm. so not very many. They didn't know what LDS were. They thought we had horns and this kind of thing. Right. As a matter of fact, none of my friends were members of the church. I remember when I was 16, I was ordained a priest, and one of my friends found out that I was ordained a priest, and they, he asked me, are you a priest? And I said, yeah, <laughs> but it's not quite like you think a priest is, you know. So, I mean, it was very, very foreign Mm. at that time. After high school, I I actually wanted to go into be a business major type thing. And I actually wanted to be be a stockbroker. And I decided to attend BYU. And the reason that I decided to attend BYU, I wanted to go to the University of Oregon, which is in Eugene, which is about 100 miles from Portland. But my dad would not let me buy a car. And so... In spite, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to BYU. 
Mm-hmm. So I went to BYU my first year there at BYU, and it was a really kind of a bad experience. Mm. I almost flunked out. Mm. I got a 2.0 GPA. Wow. I mean, I just messed around, and I was in a dormitory at John Hawk. For some reason, I was there with athletes. I'm not an athlete, <laughs> but I was there with the basketball players. All of them were not members of the church, and it was kind of a weird experience, actually. And when I got through with that year, it's like, okay, I don't want to go to any more school. It was right during the Vietnam War. Mm. I had a high draft number. I didn't want to go in the Army. I had a girlfriend. I didn't want to get married. And so I decided, well, I guess I'll go on a mission. You know? mm. Now, up there, I didn't have a testimony of the gospel mm. at all. It's just kind of a, because I didn't want to go to school, I didn't want to get married, I didn't want to go in the Army, I decided, well, I'll go on a mission. And up in Portland, nobody ever talked about these things. I didn't even have an interview with, with anyone. I just, I, I'm sure I did with my bishop. I don't recall, but nothing with the state president that I recall. Papers were sent in. I was called to Austria and, you know, go to the mission center in Salt Lake, spent a week there. And I didn't even know. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the temple. It was not talked about whatsoever. Hmm. I didn't even have an interview. I recommend. Hmm. And so I actually had to have an in- interview with LeGrand Richards, one of the apostles at the time. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't appreciate it, but it was a great inter- interview. I mean, mm-hmm. he was pretty... Uh, <laughs> he was fun. Yeah. Was just fun. But after that week in that mission home and going to the temple, my temple experience was just... I didn't understand what this was all about. I was ready to go home. But because of my mission and those things I didn't want to do, I went. it was like November. It was cold, but I spent three months in the language training mission in Provo, learning German for three months. So I did that right through Christmas and cold and had a girlfriend back home and all those things. And I'm going, oh boy, this is Mm. not good. But... I put up with it. I made it. Didn't go back to the temple again. You didn't have a temple to go to, or missionaries didn't go to the temple mm-hmm. after that. So I went to um, Vienna, Austria, and my first companion, and I'm, I'm kind of grateful for this. I can't remember his name, or I couldn't even place him if I had to, but he had been out about a year, and he didn't really... He was lazy. Mm. You know, he didn't get up till nine or ten o'clock, mm. which was great because I didn't. I hadn't read the Book of Mormon. I hadn't read the Bible. I hadn't read any of those things. So during that first, I think I was. We were together six weeks. I read the Book of Mormon, the Bible, Old and New Testament, Jesus the Christ, Marvelous Work and a Wonder by the Grand Richards, mm-hmm. yeah. and a couple other books. All in the first six weeks you were All there. in the first six weeks. I had plenty of time. He didn't want to go to go work, you know. Right, right. We didn't leave till afternoon every day. And it was cold, too, mm. up there in Vienna. And so that is when I gained a testimony of the gospel. Because huh. I was ready to come home. But I read those, and I studied them, and I prayed, and I gained a very strong testimony of the Book of Mormon, mm. which gave me a strong testimony of Joseph Smith, what I was preaching now, the first six weeks, I didn't understand anyone, and they didn't understand me, but it was still a marvelous, bad experience. Wow. So 
do you recall what the experience was that were maybe what you were reading or what you were specifically praying about when you had that aha hey this is this is real this is true it was the book of mormon it was the book of mormon that i read it and i just i prayed about it asked heavenly father and i just knew it was true i just mm. i just knew and so from that experience would you consider that a mighty change of heart oh yeah So how did that change the rest of your mission? What then happened from there forward on your mission? Then I was very excited to serve and to get out and work. My next missionary companion, he and I worked so hard and we had some baptisms. And in Austria, it's very much Catholic. And it was very unusual to have some baptisms. But we worked hard. One week we took a challenge and worked 100 hours one week. We'd get up early and go talk to taxi drivers right in downtown Vienna. And it was a great six weeks, and then after that it was even better. So it just kind of built on itself over... Yeah. And how long were you in Vienna? I was actually in Vienna for 13 months. I went to a little city called Graz and Salzburg and Innsbruck. Mm. Beautiful cities. Innsbruck wasn't the Winter Olympics there... Way yeah, back when. way back when, yeah. It was in my lifetime, but... Yeah. <laughs> but it was a long time After ago. I was there, yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and okay. go back to your childhood with your parents. How many siblings did you have? I have three siblings. I'm the oldest of three, of uh-huh. four. Of four. I have a sister who's 11 months younger than she's, me. She's barely younger. She lives in Boise, Idaho. I have a brother who is about seven years younger than me. He lives up in, in Portland still. Mm-hmm and a sister who's about 14 years younger than me. She lives in Las Vegas. So what types of things do you recall your family doing together as a, as a child? My mom and dad, they didn't get along. Mm. It was just sort of a negative type household. Mm-hmm. My dad worked out of town a lot, came home on weekends, and they always fought. I don't think I ever heard my parents say I love you to the kids mm. ever or to each other. And I'm not sure they did, actually. Right. I remember one time they almost divorced, but they didn't. But I would say it was not a good experience. But just that negative experience was an example to me that I don't want a family like that mm. ever. I want to say I love you. I want a hug. I want to kiss. All mm. those things. And so... I was very much into sports. I loved all the sports. That was kind of my growing up. I loved to play baseball. And I still remember probably 50% of our games were rained out <laughs> up in Portland. Yeah. And I was like, ah. You know, <laughs> so it was kind of frustrating. Basketball was great. Played football one year, and I was very small. I got killed. Mm-hmm. So I quit doing that. Mm-hmm. So I stuck to basketball and baseball growing up. So around the house then, did you have chores or anything like that that you were responsible for? Not that I recall, really. Not that I recall. I mean, I was the oldest of the four of us. My younger sister, I I really, she's 14 years younger. She's pretty much, I don't remember any childhood with her. So she was four when I went on my mission. So, you know, my brother, six, seven years younger than me, my sister, we we didn't get along. Mm. But after I got back from my mission, we really got along very, very well. Through grade school, high school, she and I never got along. 
So from this, I mean, we're looking at, I mean, you don't want to say a disastrous childhood, because I don't think it was disastrous, but it wasn't a an ideal no. childhood from what people would look at and say, yeah, that was, that was an ideal childhood. How have you moved past that into, and I don't want to say everything's hunky-dory in your life, but you, you now live with a, a family that at least from the outside looks like a very ideal family. So what happened? <clears throat> I'd have to give that credit to my wife, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, we met at BYU. I got back from my mission. I dated a lot. I wanted to date. So I would date, and if I found someone I liked, I would go out with someone else before I took that person out again. Hmm. And I actually met Marsha my junior year, so I'd been back, and I came home in February. So my mission was actually two years and three months. So I came home in February, went right to school, straight to school at BYU. And of course, I mean, I left as a freshman with a 2.0 grade point average. And while I was on my mission, I had a companion who was going to be a dentist. I mean, we kind of said, okay, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to be a dentist. And he was dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And and I didn't have very good self-esteem or self-confidence. And I'm going, wow, he must be a dentist. And I knew of about five men through the ward. And this girl I was dating, her dad was a dentist. I knew these dentists, and I'm going, wait, I could be a dentist. Mm. And so really, he inspired me to go, I would like to be a dentist, because I like working with people, mm-hmm. I like using my hands, and I like that type of thing. But I had no idea really what dentistry was like at that time. So when I got back to school, I changed my major from business to zoology, mm. so I could get pre-dental, and I worked really hard to get my GPA up in the next three years to a 3.3, nice. which was really hard to do. Yeah. But it was easy coming from a mission where you're strict. I think I was home three days from my mission and went right to class, and mm. it was pretty easy to, to get good grades. And then, then the summer break, went back to, and I worked during the summer, I worked for my dad in construction. He was a superintendent, mm. and he would put me on the end of a show. He started doing that when I was about six, 15 years old, actually. And my hands would hurt. I would use a jackhammer, and he would always say, the reason I'm doing this is so that you will get your education and not be a laborer your mm. whole life. And it worked. I did not want anything to do with that my whole life. So was that your first job working for your dad? Every summer for four, oh, five years, yeah. And he'd put you on the end of a shovel and say, yep. go do this manual yep. labor? And yep. So do you think that work, yes, it Sounds like it motivated you to not be a manual laborer throughout your life, but do you think that instilled additional work ethic in you, or was it done begrudgingly? Or tell tell me a little bit about that. I think I had that. I I think I had that work ethic that I wanted to work. I felt like I mean, if I had a day off, I felt guilty, and there weren't very many days off. And that started at a young age with you. Yeah, he put me on the end of a show when I was Mm fifteen, summer, and I would work in the summer months. And, and basically, that's what I did. They put me on a jackhammer some of those summers. <laughs> no wonder you're so big and strong, yeah, huh? All right, yeah. <laughs> so I went back to school after the summer, and I had some roommates. One of my companions, 
hooked me up there, and he and I roomed together with, there was six of us actually, all together. And we went to this freshman dance, and I saw this girl from behind with this long, dark hair. Mm-hmm. And I said, what the heck? I'll ask her to dance. And it turned out to be Marcia. Mm. And so I danced with her the whole night, and uh, then I, I can't remember, but somehow I got her name or number, but I didn't have a car, so I couldn't take her home. She still talks about that. But then I called her, and I'd go out with someone else in between, but I would take her out. So for a few months, I would kind of ask her out every other week or so. But the bad part was she was a freshman mm. when I was a junior. At that time, it was kind of like, frosh, you know? Yeah, yeah. Don't be dating the frosh. But anyway, I did, and we dated, and then we courted, and then we got engaged. Yeah, about a year after we... Yeah. About a year after you met, you were engaged? We were, we were married, You were married about a year yeah. after you, you yeah. met. Well, that's great. And she has, <clears throat> I'm making an assumption here, you tell me if I'm wrong, she's made all the difference? Oh, yeah. So she's the one that brought me here, mm-hmm. and I came to visit like in December. So she grew up here. She right? grew up here. In the Mesa, Arizona area. Yeah, I yeah. mean, University Drive. Her mother died this last year, mm. just barely sold her house. It's on University Drive between Stapley and Horn. It's a little old house there that that her dad built. Her grandfather owned all the land there, and so her father got the got that land, built a house. It took him five years to build the house, and it it's a dump. It's on University Drive. I tried so hard to get her parents to sell that house and move, but anyway, I was I was here in the in the winter, it's in December, and it was 70 degrees. There was no rain. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, whoa, I think this would be a place I would love to live. So she brought me down here, and then we, we got engaged in, I can't remember when we got engaged in the summer, got married in September, and had to finish the school year there. Then we had another year of BYU mm-hmm. and been accepted to a dental school. I grew up in Oregon, so the only place I applied was Portland. And... We went and applied there and interviewed there and got accepted there. I'm not sure how that happened, but it was a great experience. Well, good thing if it was the only place you applied. It was huh? the only place I applied because I was a resident of oh. Oregon. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I knew if I couldn't get into Oregon, I couldn't get in anywhere. So I did. I got accepted there. and So we started four years of dental school. Those were tough years. Those were tough. We had actually three kids in dental school. Wow. Which was hard. We didn't have any money. Our, we did try to go out once a week. Our date out would be McDonald's on a movie, take my kids over to my parents' house, mm-hmm. and for five bucks, we had a pretty nice date. We'd do that a couple times a month or something like that. Just to keep everything going. I totally understand that need to yeah. date even after. Another thing is, when we came down here after we were married, and I met her family. She had a brother and two sisters. So she was kind of the middle sister of, of four. She was next to the last. But every, this family would get together on a Sunday night at her mom's house. And you go in there, and all they did, they'd hug and kiss. And I was not used to that. Mm. That was really hard. They kissed on the lips, and I put a nix to that immediately. Wow. <laughs> So none of that. But I like the way they showed their affection with each other. Her younger sister has 11 kids, 
her older sister had one child, mm. and her older brother had six kids. The older brother and the older sister have died. Her sister mm. just died recently, mm. just after Thanksgiving, which was kind of a shock. And her husband just died this week. Really? Yeah, it, it was expected that he would die because he had some health issues. And how many kids do those do they have? One. They just had one. Mm. She lives in Gilbert. A daughter lives in Gilbert, and they have five kids. Mm. That's uh. Yeah. It's been a rough year, huh? Yeah, for my wife. It's been yeah, really been a rough year. Because her brother died about a year and a half ago. Oh wow. Her mom died in the summer. She was ninety-five. That was expected. Mm-hmm. That was a blessing, really. But her sister just died. That was a shock. That was tough. What else happened in the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years with you? It was about two years ago. I was just here at the office working, and I had a pain in my stomach. And Dallin was here, and I said, Dallin, I said, Dallin, I better go home so I can get home because yeah. it hurt that bad. So I went home, and I, the pain just got worse. Went to the doctor. Doctor sent us for an MRI. They called us immediately and said, you go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Went in there and um, took out three feet of my intestines which was really a touch and go. I almost did not make it. It was and a lot more serious than I thought. So your intestines had, three feet of them had died, or yep, what happened? it died. It huh. died. So we went in, took out three feet, put it back together. But there was a lot of stuff. I was out of it for three days. Wow. I missed the Super Bowl that year. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. And anyway, I didn't really know anything. I didn't know how bad it was. My wife really thought I was going to die. A couple of the PAs, ladies who were in attending there, have become patients of mine here, and they told me how bad it really was. <laughs> so I just saw one the other day. So with that experience, has anything in your own mentality or outlook at life and family shifted at all since that experience in your mind and heart? I wouldn't say any big shift at all. I mean, I've always tried to learn things and do better and those kind of things. I, I mean, I really, at the time, I had no idea how bad I was, except when I came out, I couldn't even get out of a chair. I couldn't walk 10 feet, even. It was just, you have hope, but you wonder if you're, if, I wondered if I was really ever going to get better. Mm-hmm. So I'd walk to the neighbor's house, and then I'd walk a little further, and after a few weeks... I could walk to the end of the street and mm. back, you know. But it, it took uh, probably took a year. As a matter of fact, I don't think I can't hit the golf ball as far as I used to, and I don't think I ever will. So I think it took a little toll there. But I think health-wise, I'm back because I didn't die. Mm. I recovered from that. I feel like I will probably live longer now mm. because the body has a tendency to uh, to rejuvenate. If you don't die, then you keep living, and it grows. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Is that the thing? Exactly. <laughs> um, people who have who have heart attacks when they're young, and they survive them, they live a lot longer because the the heart grows auxiliary arteries and kind of takes takes over there. What if it doesn't kill you? It makes you stronger. Right. So now stepping back a little bit from that experience, you said that in your own personal mind and outlook and everything, things didn't shift too much because you were already 
doing things a certain way. How about in your family, your kids or your even your wife? Anything that they've went, wow, that just happened. And now what do I need to learn from that? Well, my wife and I talk about this part of it. When I was in the hospital immediately, Dallin, who was working in our office, mm-hmm. basically said, don't worry about it, Dad. I'll take over. And he has just, since then, he's taken over and bought the practice and really, really done well. Mm-hmm. And I think we think it took that for him to just step up and say, okay, I can do this. I can do it. I can take over that. My whole dental career, I'm one of those guys who I'm always looking for something new to learn. Okay. And I, I, I've done so much continuing education, it's scary. If I had that to do again, I wouldn't probably do as much as I did. Really? Yeah. Because I, not that I... It's not lucrative enough. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> it didn't pay off in the it end. Pay, it doesn't pay off. It's very rewarding, though, in other ways. Helping people, people who have headaches, people who I've restored their mouths. And, and I've learned how to do that. My lab technician and I have worked very closely together for 42 years, and I couldn't do it without him, and he couldn't do it without me. Hmm. We both talk about the things we do. So in all that continuing education that you've done over the last 42 years, what is one thing that relates to dentistry that you've learned that's made the most difference? And what's one thing that relates to life that you've learned from those things that makes the most difference? Well, early on, and this would have been about probably 25 years ago, I attended an institute called the L.D. Pankey Institute in Florida. Very, if you talk to any dentist, everyone knows the L.D. Pankey Institute. It's the creme de la creme of dentistry. And you don't just, I spent a week there, and then the next year, week, six years I did this through all the continuums, made that work. But it's not only the dentistry, but it's also a philosophy of happiness. And they talked about, and this has helped me everywhere, they talked about a balance in life. From Aristotle, happiness is work, play, worship, and love. Those four things that you put in the balance of your life it's very, very important. And if you do that, you're happy. I think all those things are important. Mm-hmm. If, if any one of those things is out of place, the whole thing's out of place. Mm-hmm. If the work isn't enjoyable, if your play isn't enjoyable, if your worship, you don't love it, or if your love isn't where it should be, you're out of balance. Mm-hmm. You're out of balance and it just... It just won't work. So how do you keep that in balance? What are some things you do to keep that in well, balance? Well, <laughs> I'm still working one day a week. I love my wife. I'm honestly sick in love with her. I golf three days a week, and I strive really hard to fulfill my calling in the church. And my testimony of Jesus Christ is very strong. So you just maintain all of those things to the... yeah. I read my scriptures every day. What are you reading right now? Where, where are you at? I read the Book of Mormon, three pages a day, which is two times a year, and I can't miss a, I can't miss a day. Along with that, I read other 
books. I'm reading a book right now on the temple. It's a pretty good book. And then I love to read fiction novels. And I'm reading some historical fiction novels right now that are really good. I mean, I didn't think I ever liked history, but it goes back in the 1300s, the 1400s, the 1500s. I mean, the Black Plague, Queen Elizabeth, and all those things. It's fiction. It's a right. fictional story, but it's good. And I just finished The Saints, which is also, it's, it's not fictional. Right, right. <laughs> it's a non-fictional history, and it was very good, too. So I love reading. I love to play golf. I'm not very good at it, but the camaraderie with who I play with is more important than the golf itself. How did you convince Marsha that you were the one that she wanted to spend forever oh, with? <laughs> that's a good question. Just took it slowly, you know, just yeah. went through the steps and we dated and then we courted and we got engaged. While we were courting, and when I say courting, I mean we just dated each other. Mm -hmm. During that process, she started kind of saying, hey, I'm pretty young, I need to, well, her roommates had told her, hey, I want you to go out with this guy and this guy, and so she started thinking about, you know, so she started dating some other guys, mm -hmm. so I started dating some other girls, and we just kind of said, hey, this isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. We really went through the process, and that process is something I've tried to teach my boys, I try to teach my grandkids, my Oldest grandson just returned from a mission, and as soon as he's back, we went out to lunch and said, Hey, Andrew, dating is hard. Courting's hard, engagement's hard, marriage is even harder. But dating is the hardest. And I encouraged him to go out with someone, then go out with some, if he likes her, go out with someone else. And before he takes her out again. And he did that. Hmm. You know? And he's engaged now. Wow. <laughs> so... He says, that it worked, Grandpa. I mean, she's the one. <laughs> and I've tried to pass that on to Dallin. And when Dallin was dating, I, I said, okay, Dallin, I'll pay for your dates if you do this. So I paid for his dates, and he did it. Mm. Went up to BYU, and his wife still says he's the best dater he, she ever went out with. <laughs> well, that paid off there. What are some other lessons, words of wisdom, that you <laughs> tried to pass on to your kids as they were kids as you were parenting them? Well, parenting is hard, and, and so, you know, I grew up in a home, my dad took off his belt, he never really whipped me, but he threatened lots of times, and punishment, you know, was there. My wife knows all about parenting, mm -hmm. and I sort of let her do it, and I don't, I try not to get in the way, really, but the philosophy that she follows is, correction is the top of the pyramid, it comes from Arbinger Institute. Oh, yes. Correction is right at the top. But before correction, teaching. Mm. And before teaching, relationship with your children. And before that, relationship with your spouse. And before that, yourself. So if somebody says, well, what do I do for my child who comes home at 1 o'clock in the morning? You know, that's the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. You have to go through this pyramid and all these other steps. You have to teach them. Well, you can't teach until you have a relationship. Well, you can't have a relationship unless you have a relationship with your spouse. And you can't have that until you know that you're in line yourself. Along with that, I don't know if you've ever heard of the heliotropic effect. I've heard the word and I've heard the concept, but I, I don't know. Heliotropic <laughs> means 
If a plant is planted, it will always go to the light, to the sun. Mm. It'll just go there. And every being, every organism is that way. I mean, if we come into a room and it's dark, we're going to look for flipping on the switch, heliotropic. And so the, the heliotropic effect is being very positive for the right reasons, sincerely positive, sincerely being kind, being grateful, being generous, smiling, all, mm -hmm. all those things. That heliotropic effect is just something that you sort of learn. It's in nature. It's, it's the light of Christ. It's even more than that. Mm. It's having the spirit of the Holy Ghost. And having that in the home. You, you said for the right reasons. Having that for the right reasons. What does that mean? The right reason meaning you're not just doing it because you're not just being positive, patronizing or whatever. You actually genuinely care about another person. And so you care about your kids. My wife could tell you so many examples of what do we do? And, and when somebody slaps the kid in the gro grocery store because they want something, that's just trying to correct right. everything else is just not in line. Were there times when things weren't in line in your home and you didn't know or you had to go back a couple of levels to, to get back to that point? Well, my wife is very good at those types of things. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong. She won't let us sleep. She mm. gets after it. I mean, she gets after me, and mm -hmm. I, I sort of fight against it, but I always end up doing it. Are I you think. doing it for the right reasons? <laughs> I'm doing it because I love her, and I, yes. and I know she's right, even though mm. I deny that she's right. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's the male ego yes. that goes along with that. Yeah. How are your kids perpetuating this heliotropic and this, this pyramid lesson in their own families. Is that something that they are carrying forward? I sure think they are. I mean, they've passed it on to the grandkids. The grandkids are just very, very good people. Mm. If I had something in my life that I might change as I look back, mm -hmm. I've probably been too heliotropic. I've been too trusting of people when those people were not trustworthy. And so when I met these people, I thought, oh, that's a good person. I want and so I've lost a lot of money because these people were not trustworthy. And I look back at my life, and there's been a lot of those occasions when I trusted people that I probably shouldn't have trusted as I look back. Hmm. And that's given me now, seven years old, yeah. a huge sense of discernment. When it comes to financial matters, I don't even touch it anymore. I don't do it. My wife does it. If I want to take it, if I want to get a dollar, I gotta go ask her for it. But she takes care of the finances. She's not gonna give money to people like I used to, because I just used to give it to them. They yeah. just have to ask, and I give it to them. And they weren't trustworthy of that. Are there any other situations that stick out in your mind as wow? I really learned a lesson from that one. And you don't need to name names or. Or anything like that, but I'd love to hear about that. There's a lot of them that I should have learned the oh, lesson. Yeah. But I haven't. I, mm, okay. I, I hope I have now. But, <laughs> but um, and a couple of them were, they weren't intentionally trying to deceive me, mm. but unintentionally they did. And I look back at that and I go, you know, they deceived themselves probably just as well. 
If I, would, if I had them here and asked them, they would say, I didn't do anything wrong. But they really did. So if I were one of these people standing here and said, I didn't do anything wrong, what did I do wrong in that case, you know, in that situation? Because I'm sure there are people now or in the future that will hear this that, that will be in those shoes. What did they or what did I do wrong in those cases? That person, they've got this piece of paper over their eyes and all they can see is right there. So any shame and any guilt, even remorse, is pushed way down. They don't have any. They don't have, that person has no remorse whatsoever. And so if, if they're sitting there and you're talking to them and they're lying to you, you don't really know they're lying. You're just going, they can't possibly be lying because you trust them totally. And so my advice to that would be, of course, the old saying, if it's too good to be true, it's, it probably isn't. But even if it's really good, if it sounds, looks good, it's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> At least not as good as what it's being sold as being, right? Exactly. I would say, number one, don't trust what you're hearing. And number two, do your due diligence. Be careful with investments. If I would have put the money that I have given to people... Under a mattress, under a mattress, mm -hmm. I'd be a million dollars richer today. So you're saying that if someone comes to me and says, hey, I've got this great idea, I got that. Um, don't do it. Either don't do it or due diligence big time on it and just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. So say that someone, say that I come to you and say, hey, Paul, I got this idea. I want you to look at it. What should I do differently in that? Not to convince you to invest or whatever it would be. But how should I approach things differently with that great idea? If it's really a great idea, do it yourself. And just build it slowly? Yeah. If someone tells you, I need you to make this happen, or we can make it happen quicker, just don't do it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you've had some a oh, few of those experiences. And it doesn't mean everybody's untrustworthy. Right. But the one, I'm a magnet for the sociopath and slightly social, sociopath. Person who, they don't know what they're doing. They've got blinders. Like you put blinders on a mm -hmm, horse mm -hmm. and they push the shame and the guilt and there's no remorse mm -hmm. afterwards. It's like, oh yeah, everything's going to be fine. And I don't care what their position in the church is. Right. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. What is your experience with that? I mean, I talk to people who say, hey, my bishop told me to do this. My state president told me to do this. Um, yes, our bishops and our state presidents and whatever are called to that position for a purpose to that, but they're still human. So what is your take on that? What is your idea on how to we how do we and it doesn't even need to be religious leaders. Let's just talk about community our elders are whatever people of of some sort of um, respectable standing or place of influence. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile 
the place of importance or influence and the humanity of it, the, the imperfection of it. If it has something to do with finances, stay away. Okay. First person I'm talking about was a bishop, hmm. was my bishop. I don't know how much I lost there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it led to another one that lost more. Good friend lost there. And if you ask them, they didn't do anything wrong. They were doing everything right. They really, for whatever reason, they think they're doing, they're okay. They hmm. think they're trustworthy. But if it has to do with finances, stay away from it. If it has to do with relationships, that's different. Hmm. Even then, how do you separate the human, the imperfection from the place of yeah. if a, influence or whatever? If a bishop knows you and tells you to avoid this person, mm-hmm. then avoid the person. Hmm. If a bishop says, befriend that person, then befriend him. But don't invest with him. <laughs> Either way, I mean, if a bishop or anyone of influence is dealing with finances, stay away. Just don't do it. Just do something else. Go lose it in the stock market or whatever you want, but it doesn't matter. But, right. but don't get other people involved with your money. Even family, right. especially family. I'm going to jump a little bit to a different topic. Okay. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you read a lot. And you talked about the Book of Mormon being a mighty change of heart situation mm-hmm. on, your, on your mission and that you still read that. Three pages a day, never missing, so you get through it twice a year. What are some of the other most impactful books that you've read in your life? When I got out of school, I was tired of reading. I didn't want to read. But I wanted to read some novels. So I started this Louis L'Amour novel, and I read a chapter. And after I finished the chapter, I realized I don't remember anything I just read. My mind was going somewhere else. Mm. So I decided to read it again, the chapter. And I read it again, and the same thing. My mind's going everywhere else. So I decided, hey, I'm going to grab my mind and put it back in my head. And I got through the first chapter, and I understood what I read, and I loved the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Louis L'Amour, I don't know which one of his it was. It was way back when and I read I've read novels ever since. There's been a great series, fiction, out of darkness into the light, is really good on the Book of Mormon. It's a okay. fun, fun book. I've read, I don't know how many self-help books. There's a fellow by the name of Steve Chandler. He's written probably 30 self-help books that I've, I mean, they're just easy reading and they're very good. So of those self-help books, is there one or two of Steve Chandler's that you really no, like a lot? No, I like them all. Yeah? Yeah, and I spent some time with Steve with a mastermind group for a while. There was about uh, 20 of us that got together and once a month, and it was really great. Steve Chandler is also a coach, mm-hmm. but he has a life coach whose name is Steve Hardison. He's what you call the ultimate coach. Because okay. he coaches Steve. Okay. I mean, he has people come in. He lives over just really close. But I spent some time with him, and it was good. Wrote a little manuscript. 
mission mission statement yeah. type thing. Yeah, kind of. I'd love to hear it if you can find, dig it out there. And Let me see if I, I made a bunch of copies of it. I don't. There used to be one in here, but I don't <laughs> think there is still. No, I've got them at home, but. Just tell me a couple bullet points. Bullet point that bullet point uh, was, that manuscript. It was like uh, put emphasis on service, you know, which I didn't realize until I spent some time with him, and I like service. So that kind of came to the surface that hey, this is kind of who I am. Yeah. is service. Yeah. What? But I don't. Kind of I don't think I am. Huh. <laughs> So that's really interesting, and this conversation isn't about me, but I've also uh, been meeting with a coach, and, and the thing that's boiled to the surface, surface with me is this little phrase right here, um, inspire people to see their own worth. And when that came to the surface, I was like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, I don't know, the word inspire to me sounds too strong for what I am, but I do love to learn about people and then help them see the value that they bring to me and to others. That's something that, that really drives me. So that's one of the reasons I do these things. That's cool. One of the things I've learned from my wife, my wife and I are very opposite. Hmm. You, you don't think so, people don't think so, but we really, really, I mean, she's kind of got green skin and I got sort of reddish white <laughs> skin. I mean, that's just one thing. But my wife is a true introvert. You know, when people hear introvert, extrovert, they think, I mean, you know my wife. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem like introvert right, to right. the definition. But the true introvert is where you gain your energy. And a true introvert gains energy from being alone. An extrovert gains energy from being with other people. I'm, I'm not an end-of-the-line extrovert, but I'm more extroverted than introverted. So if we go to a function... And, you know, a lot of people there are, you know, I don't want to go. She doesn't, she really doesn't want to go, but we go, Mm -hmm. we go. And in about the first 30 minutes, I mean, I'm like, I'm gaining energy. I like Mm -hmm. being there with talking to people and her energy level is just going down. I got to take her out and put her in the car for a while, but she's a true introvert. When I, I used to do a lot of continuing education for dentistry and we'd go to places and it was a two or three day course. She would be in the motel room, and I would go to classes. She loved it. People would say, where's your wife? Well, she's in the motel. Oh, they'd say, oh, that's too bad. She loved it. No phone. She brought her books. She did her thing. My wife is very organized. She's also, opposite from me, she's very sequential. I mean, she gets up in the morning and the list. First thing she does, she makes a list. Mm -hmm. If she doesn't have her list, she can't function. I wouldn't know what to do with a list. <laughs> I'm what I call, what we call random. I mean, I can play it by ear. You call me up and say, let's go to a ball game. I said, go. If I were to call her right now and say, let's go, she'd say, no, it's not it's on, not my, on list. my list. I can't do yeah. it, you know, type thing. She's so sequential and so organized. But I mean, she really is sequential. Hmm. And I'm not. I mean, she organizes our life. She's so how very, does she put up with you? I don't know. We've, we've talked about that a lot, but but it's like, uh, I guess because we're opposites, we attract. Mm. You know, she takes care of me. I mean, she she organizes everything. So what do you bring to the relationship? And this sounds like hammering on you. Know. What do you bring to the relationship? Because she gets something from you. you, you would <laughs> Your probably, good looks. <laughs> you'd probably have to ask her. I preside in the home. Okay. But she does it all. <laughs> 
That's all I can say. I'm pretty good at presiding as long as she prepares our home evenings mm -hmm. from day one. I mean, she would get with the kids. She would outline the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I would come in and say, all right, let's do it. Huh? Yeah. I'd say, okay, there's the prayer. You have the lesson. But she really <laughs> did it. She got with whoever the lesson, and she prepared it. Do you think that that's been helpful to your kids moving forward, that she was uh, that way? Or do you think it may be a hindrance even? It's, I don't think it's a hindrance, mm -hmm. but none of my kids make lists. Mm. They've, a lot of times they've tried to. Mm -hmm. They've got little notebooks, and they, make up, they buy something, they go, try to make lists. They don't do it. They inherited my randomness. My Did they marry people that are um, somewhat uh, list-making people? Not list-making, but maybe a little more organized. More organized. Perhaps. I think there's just a couple more questions I want to hit on here. You talked about the manuscript being service-centered. What are some other core values, core principles, or mission statements that kind of drive you? I would say the Aristotle Cross of mm -hmm. Happiness, the heliotropic effects, realizing that everybody's looking to, for more positive. You know, you smile. You know, nobody likes the grumpy person and... There's a group I play golf with. Mm -hmm. There's actually six of us. There's four that when it's just the four of us, it's great. Mm -hmm. When one of these other two fellows come in, it just rubs us. And it's one's a great golfer and the other one's a poor golfer. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with the golf. It just has to do with their effect, mm. their spirit, their light, the light of Christ. Interesting. As you look back at your life um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you feel is some wisdom that is worth passing on some wisdom maybe you've learned by ob observing others or earned through experience whether it be a victorious experience or whether it be fall on your face experience well knowledge is very valuable but the application of that knowledge is a lot more valuable, and that's wisdom. And one other thing, what's the name of no no and do no and do knowledge and application. What would you say, Justin, is the mother of all learning? The mother of all learning. I would think that um, difficult experience. I think for me is where I learn. Maybe I've fallen on my face and failed. Well, what, what do you think? I mean, you learn from that, definitely. Yeah. But the mother of all learnings mm -hmm. is repetition. Mm. Doing it again. Reading the Book of Mormon every day. Twice a year for I don't know how many years. Repeating things. When I have the opportunity to teach once a month, first thing I do is, okay, what's the mother of all learning? Repetition. And so we repeat the mm. last few lessons. But repetition, and, and same like in a dental practice. I mean, I saw a fellow the other day, Tuesday, he came in. He comes in about every five years, whether he needs to or not, and has since the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I saw a couple of crowns that I did on him back in the 80s, and they're still holding up pretty well, but they just look ugly. And so repeating doing that and learning as I go and making it better has just... Invaluable. I guess that's why it's, you're always practicing mm -hmm. as a doctor, mm -hmm. as a dentist. It's practice. You just practice, practice, practice. In the, in the church, 
Is there anything we haven't heard before from the from the stand? No. No, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And that's, I think, Heavenly Father created that way. I like, I'm talking about these, these situations where I've lost trust and lost money and mm -hmm. lost those kind of things. I, I keep doing it. So repetition to me about anything is important. I love to play golf, mm -hmm. and I go out and I practice and I hit balls. And so I'm repeating. But I know darn well I'm doing it wrong when it doesn't go where it should go. So it's also important to make sure you're repeating the right thing. I think this will be my last uh, question here. In Scripture, is there any character or any story that you really relate to in your life? Hmm, that's a tough one. A couple of Scripture... Uh, stories or incidences that I love. The two is the two that I love are Nephi's Psalms. Oh wretched man that I am! I mean, here's a man that is I wouldn't call him wretched, mm -hmm. <laughs> yet he's putting himself because of something that he's done, whatever it might be, that he doesn't feel worthy to be where he is. And I, I just think that is just I love to read Nephi's Psalms. Mm -hmm. And the other one is when Alan talks about, and he says, oh, if I were an angel. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about it, and you, oh, wouldn't it be fun just to be an angel and just to talk to people and tell people and serve people? But no, that's not a good thing to wish for. So those are the two things that kind of jump out at me, my, my favorites. So how do you relate to, let's take the Psalm of Nephi. Okay. Um, when you read that, where do you put yourself as you're reading that? Whose shoes are you in? It makes me feel better about myself. Okay. <laughs> because I'm not as good as Nephi. And, mm -hmm. But I know, I know I have hope. If he can do it, so can I. Wretched man that I am, but I know in whom I trust, right? Yes. In the Savior Jesus Christ. What a great, great example and great story there. Well, I really appreciate this time, Paul. It's been, oh, my a, pleasure. It's been a good conversation. Thanks for... Great question. <laughs> I didn't think I had all this in me to tell you the truth. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Once again, if you know anyone, or are anyone, that would love to share experiences of life in a long-form conversation, please send me an email at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com. As always, my experience is that wisdom and peace in this life come from knowing the Savior, Jesus Christ, and doing as He would have me do. He made the lane.